This is the Inside Scoop with your hosts, Alex Sherman and Edmund Lee. Welcome to the Inside Scoop. I'm Alex Sherman, joined by Edmund Lee, as always, today, joined by media reporter extraordinaire Brian Stelter of the New York Times. Very happy to have him in with us to talk about all things media and a little bit about his career uh, getting to this point. I think Brian's sort of a unique case uh, of a, a younger yet very prolific reporter who's done a lot in a short amount of time. Brian, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you for the, uh, the friendly introduction. Uh, so first thing I want to talk about, um, you, you hosted Reliable Sources this past week on CNN. Uh, you are a, a best-selling author uh, with a book on morning TV, which people should check out if they haven't, called Top of the Morning. Um, and you're uh, I, you're under 30 years old still, right? Uh, if, if I well, have that I'm correct. almost 28. Almost 28. <laughs> wow, you're you're getting My up there, Brian. Coming up, it's <laughs> a Labor Day weekend, so I've been trying to figure out what to do for it. So you know, the, the two of us are, are also media reporters. My question for you is: Has your career progressed as you thought it would when you were first starting out? Whew, uh, I don't think I had a plan. I, I don't know if anybody really has a plan when they graduate college. Um, at least I wasn't smart enough to have one. But that was about six years ago. And uh, when I got to the Times, I was intimidated enough that I put my head down and wrote a ton of stories for a while and, and uh, tried not to make much of a fuss. And I guess that's worked because uh, I was able to later write the, my book about morning TV and and uh, and do more television appearances and that sort of thing. Uh, but I but I definitely didn't have a roadmap, and if I did, I don't think it would have looked like this. Well, well, we should we should alert, alert our listeners certainly for those who who for the five of you people out there who may not uh, be aware that you five know, or six five or six of them right. Brian started out blogging uh, your 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 blog TV Newser, uh, which is now part of the Media Bistro Group. Um, you know, you broke a ton of stories on the TV beat. And it was sort of a hobby for you at first. Isn't that right? I mean, you just oh, it was something you were interested I, and, in. And if I thought it was a business, I don't think I would have enjoyed it. Uh, when I was in college, when I was blogging, I think I only enjoyed it because it was a hobby. I think if I had been worrying about making money or treating it as a business, I don't think I would have enjoyed it anymore. So uh, I, I didn't really reap many rewards from it in college. But but you know, the time job really was the reward, um, to be able to uh, – to, um, turned into a profession and to, and to write about this stuff every day is awesome. And, you know, one of the reasons why I don't think it would have been even worthwhile to have a roadmap six years ago is that the TV beats changed in ways that I couldn't have imagined. I mean, it is such an interesting time to write about TV now. It, frankly, I look back in 2007, 2008, when I was just getting started, and I think it was kind of boring back then compared to what it's like now with, with Hulu and Netflix and Amazon and Aereo and all these other uh, names and phrases I can throw out there that, that are making it so interesting. So I, I'm curious, Brian, how did you transition from a general interest in the world of television to journalist? Because it seems to me mm. that a hobby is one thing, but actually going out there and making sources is something a little different. Well, truth be told, when I started my blog, and this is like 10 years ago now, so I feel like I'm talking about into history, but I, I was doing more of my own opinion. I was expressing what I thought about shows on TV. And literally within a matter of weeks, I realized people didn't care so much what I thought. They, they cared about what was going on in the newsrooms and on television and behind the scenes, and, and that's what people were interested in. And, and I got more interested in it, too, as I learned about it. So the sources in, at first, honestly, came to me. They, um, you know, anchors and producers would send me tips and send me ratings when they wanted to brag. The great thing about cable news uh, then and now is that somebody's always winning. Somebody always wants to brag. 
And so somebody always wants to send you the ratings and send you the highlights and send you the scores, you know. Uh, and so that helped a lot in the beginning. And then I got, as I got more skeptical and I learned more, I got more critical. I was able to, to use those journalistic instincts that I was learning in college at the time and really apply them to the blog. What Are there certain things now that you're at the New York Times where you think, you know, wow, yeah, I'm, I'm in this position here, but gosh, I really don't like this about my job. I mean, it's something, you know, a job is still a job. What about the, the role of media beat do you wish could change? Well, I don't like it when you beat me on stories. <laughs> um, I don't like it when the Wall Street Journal beats me on stories. Uh, but but that, that's what makes it fun. I am so glad that there are a few really good competitors out there um, because that does make it fun, even though it uh, temporarily stings. It's like some sort of bug bite or, or touching your hand on the stove or something, right? Uh, so um, there's, there's nothing else that really stands out that I, that I dislike. Um, I think it's such a fascinating time in, in television. And, and to me, you know, like cable news is how I started. But, I, you know, to me, that's a tiny little piece of, of, of this fascinating story that's happening. Um, now there are these changes in consumer behavior that are especially interesting. Uh, and everybody can relate to them. I'm sure you guys have the same experience where at a cocktail party or, or at a dinner party or something, everybody uh, wants to be in on that conversation about TV, whether it's talking about binging Orange is the New Black or House of Cards or it's talking about Modern Family or Community. Everybody can relate uh, to this topic. Yeah, I, it's I like think sex you're, and food. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. I think t- television definitely um, has a lot of uh, attracted. A, despite all what people are saying about the ratings these days, there's so much happening. Right. There's so much culture around television. Yeah. I think you're exactly people right. People want to know why they can't get CBS if they're time one exactly cable customers right, right now. <laughs> yeah, and there's more intensity. That, I mean, the audiences yeah, might be intensity. more fractured, but yeah, they're, they're more intense about the shows that they're watching. I think know. that's true, even compared to, I mean, I, I've only been doing this six years, but I think it's gotten a lot more intense. And maybe that's because things are on demand, they're all easier to access now, so we can catch up on shows. But my goodness, like, to get, to watch people's faces light up when I mention that I just binged on Scandal. <laughs> you know, right. I could spend the rest of the night talking about that show. One thing I definitely want to touch on, Brian, is sort of, uh, and we can we can transition to newspapers and then back to TV, Um you're in a position at the New York Times that I think has gotten a bit of attention recently with Nate Silver leaving the New York Times and going to ESPN and finding a more of a format like Grantland that he wants to join. You, I think, like Nate Silver, are someone who's young and made a name for themselves. Do you feel like the Times needs to adjust to make sure that they're not seen as an old person's publication that isn't the best destination for intrepid young reporters like yourself? I know this is going to sound all supportive of the company, but I, I actually think they have adjusted. And, and, and I'm sure they, they need to continue to, to adjust. But uh, I look around the newsroom and I see a lot more young faces than I did when I arrived here, a lot more. Um, and, and sometimes young means 23 and sometimes young means 33, depending on a person's uh, journalistic uh, you know, uh, career trajectory and stage in life. But I think we've done a really good job of bringing in young talent uh, as well as talent generally. And um, I, even though I know that in the press there's been this narrative about losing Nate Silver and what it means, I wonder if we're going to look back a year from now and think that was an anomaly, um, of which there maybe there will be more. Uh, you know, I, um, with Nate Silver, because he um, came in and he already had something established, and then he left having been even more established, like, I kind of I kind of wonder if it was an anomaly. I guess that we don't know yet, but I kind of have that suspicion that it was. Well, and, uh, to your well, so to your point, Brian, I think you know uh, what was interesting yesterday when your guys' website was was down for a little bit. Uh, it was not hacked; it was just an internal uh, right. error. 
you know, a lot of you guys were saying funny things on Twitter, and I think it, it showed the humor of the newsroom and, and the fact that they're on Twitter, of course, and, and, and saying funny things or lighthearted things is sort of a sign of, you know, sort of a certain evolution anyway among the you personality know, poking, of the newsroom. poking fun of the company a little bit, I noticed. Right, uh, some yeah. people, uh, you know, found themselves amused while others were horrified by the blackout. Uh, and, um, you know, personally, I was a little bit of both. Uh, you know, you never want to have the psycho down like that, but I'm glad that people, uh, A, cared, and B, uh, found ways to amuse themselves in the meantime. And you're right, I think uh, the the amount of Twitter traffic from people in the newsroom shows that I think the place um, is adapting really well. Well, but to, to kind of tag on to Alex's question a little bit, though, I mean, you, you're you're prolific, as we as we noted. Uh, we, you hosted uh, Reliable Sources on CNN this past weekend. Uh, we thought you did a, a great job. I think Thank I you. really liked the, the, the John Oliver versus John Stewart <laughs> segment. That was sort of, that was fun. That was nice. That was exactly sort of the right kind of, you know, interesting media segment about like a little bit insidery but also you know a fun way of doing it i mean do you feel that you want to do more of that kind of thing i mean being at the times i know you guys have been doing the video stuff but that's different from you know being on cnn um you know to, to millions of or potentially millions of viewers i haven't given it much thought because i never imagined that howie kurtz would leave the reliable sources show that he was on for 15 years um so i guess if uh, I guess if I had known years ago that job was going to be opened up, maybe I would have thought about whether I'd want it badly or not. But uh, I, I approached last week as a one-time thing, and uh, I, I hope it happens again because I found it to be really enjoyable and, and um, surprisingly surprisingly hard before 11 a.m. when the show starts, but then surprisingly easy after 11 a.m. once the show was on the air. Um, but I, I don't feel this automatic desire to do more TV. I do feel a desire to do more video because... I think people spend so much more time watching video than they do watching uh, reading, <laughs> reading newspapers or reading online news. Um, it just seems to me that the Times and everybody else has to go where those fishes are. If, if consumers, if Americans spend four to five hours a day watching TV and, and consuming online video, well, gosh, we've got to do more of that. Um, and I'm glad that we are here. I, I think our video plans, although not fully formed yet, seem to be moving in that direction in the last few months. How should we feel about the future of newspaper journalism? Is the digital transition going to work? What you mean at the Times or in general? I mean in general. I'm, I'm, I, gosh, I guess nervous is the word that comes to mind in general, because you look at the performance of paywalls other than at a national level at the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and you wonder how it's going to be possible to get more people to pony up a few bucks a month for their local news. But you look at the success of the New York Times wall uh, and the, when the Wall Street Journal, and, uh, you know, I think there's reason to be optimistic there, at least on the national level, that there are, there's a base of so many hundreds of thousands of people that are willing to, to pay. Um, I, I just wish, as a consumer, that it would get a lot easier to pay uh, for news. Right now, I still think it's way too difficult to pay for news, especially at the local level. Uh, and, and I don't know who or how or, or how that, when that's going to change. Um, but to me, that would be a, a, a key thing to look out for. Why can't I point my phone at a billboard or at a print newspaper and automatically buy uh, a subscription or buy a one-time access uh, sort of card? Um, why, why can't I, uh, through Amazon or, or something, just automatically uh, get access to the news? It just seems like there's more friction there than there should be, generally speaking. I imagine one one concern with that also is there are still so many outlets where I can get some sort of news for free uh, 
that, you know, I think there's just a general uh, obstacle in the minds of many consumers that say, hey, you know what, do I really need to buy this now? All I need to do is wait five minutes to get back to my whatever it is, and I can get more or less the same thing and not have to pay. And I wonder if we are getting to a point where eventually it's all going to be blocked. Uh, or not, or maybe there will always be a business model that says, hey, look, everybody else is blocking it, so I'm going to make sure that mine isn't blocked, and then I'll get all the eyeballs and all the ad revenue. If it is all blocked, I hope there's some way for me to pay for it all at once, you know, for me to have a $10 a month fee that gets me onto every news site in the same way that, you know, I mean, look at the, the, the television. Look at television bundling, par- right. Look at the parallel universe of, of online video between Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon. I pay for all three because I'm a junkie. If I wasn't, I'd probably pay for at least one of them. Uh, and they give me everything, pretty much everything that I want from online video uh, right now. Well, uh, if there was a version of that for news, uh, I think we would uh, be in a better place as an industry. For, forget about the nationals for a minute. Talking about the locals and regionals, we'd be in a better place. You know, that's interesting, actually, that a bunch of uh, some of the media executives, some, some over at News Corp in particular, that is one thing that they had experimented with, which is bundles right. for, for news. You know, you do it with television. You know, when we talk about, say, News Corp or 21st Century Fox now, they've got Fox News and FX and, you know, Fox Broadcast. They bundle it into one package and they sell it to the distributors. Why can't you do the same with news, whether it's the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Economist, whatever it might be? Of course, then you get into the sticky issue of, like, well, you've got all these competitors bundled into one subscription. But also, the, the ironic thing about that is that, you know, consumers are, like, pounding their fists saying, if only things were bundled, bundled. <laughs> you know, right. if only I could buy it all together right. instead of this piecemeal, only what I want. And uh, that may bring up, you know, one of the, uh, for journalists, unfortunate truths of the digital age, which is, or of all ages, forget the digital age for me, let's back up, you know, let's go into history. Most people tend not to consume a whole lot of news. Um, you know, uh, I, I hate to use the typical family reference, but, you know, my brothers aren't consuming a whole lot of news every day. Uh, my mom's consuming more than they are, but she's not consuming as much as I am either. Uh, there's a lot of people out there that, that just want to be reassured the world's okay. They just want to be reassured their, that their markets are okay. Uh, and I wonder if there are products for them. Uh, of course, the New York Times is trying that. There's been reports out there about some sort of, um, you know, slimmed down, uh, you know, uh, you know, a ch- cheaper product. Or a light version of the Times. A, li- right. a light version, yeah, right? Exactly. And, and I think we've, I think we've also said there will be some sort of, high, you know, a higher end version. But it's clear from Mark Thompson's comments uh, on the quarterly earnings calls that that there's going to be different tiers of service. You know, I, I wonder if there are uh, there are opportunities there to reach people who aren't going to pay a lot for news, but maybe if we're lucky, we'll pay a few dollars. So, I, I mean, Brian, you're, you, you've written very smartly about uh, sort of digital media in general. Uh, and I think when we talk about newspapers, that's what really what we're talking about. Uh, you, is, have you had any interest in sort of entering that sort of side, of side of it, you know, from the business side, so to speak? You seem to have a lot of ideas. You seem to have a lot of awareness, certainly, and passion about it. Uh, is that something you'd ever consider? Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a hardball question. I wish I had a good answer for you. <laughs> I've never really thought about it because I guess I've – Feel like my obsession is in the reporting and in the, and that's to lesser extent the writing. Actually, I think writing is really hard, but I love the reporting and the researching and the editing and the fact checking. I love everything around journalism, except for having to put the words together into sentences. So I, I, I think a lot I of us feel that way, Brian. So you're, you're in good <laughs> I company. Hope so. yeah. I'm curious, I hope Brian. So. How did the process come about for you to write the book? Uh, you know, where, where was the idea germinated there, and then sort of how did that process happen? 
uh, the idea actually wasn't mine. The idea um, I had was for a book about cable news, about Fox, MSNBC, basically about the war between those two channels. Uh, and uh, nobody wanted to buy it. They all said that if people who would buy a Fox book would never buy an MSNBC book and vice versa. Uh, and, of course, Gabriel Sherman's book about Fox was already out there and, and generating attention at the time. So uh, me and my agent go to a couple editor's offices. We sit down just to talk and figure out ideas that might work. And, and my editor uh, at Grand Central said, what about mornings? What about morning TV? So it was really his idea that they got it started. And uh, I'm so glad he mentioned it because um, a month uh, after uh, that conversation, uh, and Curry, actually a month before that conversation, Ann Curry had just been promoted at the Today Show. And Josh Elliott had just joined GMA. And all of these pieces were in place uh, for the um the there's like looming high drama yeah what's the word for what happened last year i guess i haven't even fully processed it for the for the uh drama of 2012 with ann curry's firing and all of that so um it it was was his idea and for me i wanted to see if i could physically write a book i mean i'm the stereotypical twitter guy who thinks in 140 characters uh, at a time so um to have to write a book was a very cool challenge that um that I took on in part because I didn't know if I could do it physically. Did you become a morning TV fan? Because personally, I don't think I, I know if have. you have. I, you, I still watch. You're the only person under 30 that's male that's a morning <laughs> TV fan. Well, I do, I do watch. I'm key, when I'm watching, I'm keenly aware that I'm not the demo, and I try to remember they're not making the shows for me. Uh, but but I find that the producers of these shows are very good at making the shows for women in their 30s and 40s and 50s, and I I respect it from that point of view that they're very good at um, at trying to reach that audience. And, and I still watch the shows now, believe it or not. Uh, I miss I miss them once in a while, but I flip between pretty much the three big network shows and the three big cable shows. And did you enjoy the experience? I mean, sort of along the line, uh, at least the, from from my perspective, and reading outsiders talk about your book and the experience. Yeah, there were at least it hinted at that you know maybe you made some enemies along the way. Uh, enemies, I don't know. I, I think I. Um, uh, you, are you referring to particular anchors at particular morning shows? Correct, Matt Lauer. So <laughs> I, I hesitate because I, I actually think that I mean I haven't talked to Lauer since the book came out, but I have a feeling if he would ask, if he was asked, I think he would he would say only kind things. Um, I actually knew when he when I started working on the book. Uh, two years ago, that he was never going to cooperate. He told me that ahead of time. So uh, to, to to have people say, "Oh, well, he refused to talk to you," I was kind of surprised. People t- thought it was that um, uh, serious because I kind of always knew he would never cooperate. After all, you guys know this. Can anchors ever really say what they feel? Can they ever really speak up? Probably not. Probably not. They have Fire to have their agents. Well, well, <laughs> right. Well, no, that's true. Keith Olbermann can. Right. That's true. He gave that great interview to the Hollywood Reporter this week. Right, Ann Curry uh, can, maybe. And, well, you know, I think she's still bound uh, by, by NBC, and she hasn't been allowed to give interviews. But um, but, but I think, generally speaking, I got better material for the book from their producers, their friends, their family members, their their former colleagues than I, than I did from the anchors themselves. Well, yeah, I mean, the ultimate write-around, I mean, that, a lot of times you end up getting the best stuff when you're having to write around people anyway. Um, uh, absolutely, but uh, I, I came away... Um, you know, I think I felt the same way about the book that I do about articles in the paper. I loved everything but the writing. <laughs> I loved doing all of it except for the words on the page. That's often the case with me. Yeah, I think I think we all feel the same way about the whole approach. But uh, you know, get the hunt. You know, trying to win the story, trying to break the news. Uh, that that's what we all live and for. And then, of course, one, you know, for a book, what's so strange is you hear about something in gosh August, 
and then you have to hope that no one reports it for nine months. <laughs> you've had to sit on you've had to sit on a bunch of scoops. A certain that, yeah. kind of trauma, and you know, to Joe Hagan's credit, he wrote a big New York uh, New York Magazine story in March of this year about the Today Show drama, and he had um, several of the details down to the same quotes. And I thought, you know. I'm impressed. I was I was very impressed that day. Yeah, no, but Joe thankfully Higgins his article good, yes. made made my uh, made people even more interested in my book. So uh, you know maybe people read his and then wanted more as a result. I'm interested, Brian. Uh, your thoughts on sort of the future of TV? One story we're we're just uh, coming out today. The Wall Street Journal reporting that Viacom has reached a preliminary deal with Sony to start offering its programming in conjunction with some of the Sony devices out there. Maybe the the beginning steps toward a true over-the-top service for live streaming programming that isn't cable. Uh, I'm, you know, what are your thoughts on Apple TV, Google, Intel? Are these things going to take over, or are they going to be sideline products? Well, as a reporter, I think to myself, if one of these actually gets off the ground, whether it's Intel, Sony, Google, or somebody else, to me it's the biggest TV story of the year. And I've said that to everybody that'll, anybody that'll listen to me. Because of the competitive possibilities it opens up, I, I don't know if any of them will be popular. I don't know if any of them will actually be successful. But the notion of a new, uh, new kind of competition for cable is fascinating to me. Because if, let's say Sony is the first to launch a bundle of channels over the Internet, doesn't Comcast have to respond within months with their own? Doesn't Time Warner Cable have to respond with their own? Uh, you know, Cox is already testing something a little bit like this down in Southern California. Uh, Comcast has been working on their version of this for over a year. Seems like Time Warner Cable is, is has something up their sleeves as well. I assume that it would kick off this this battle, um, you know, this competitive battle uh, to sell cable over the internet. It could be really great for consumers. I think. I, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's like it, whether it's Sony or Intel or whomever it might be. It's like you've crossed that Rubicon. And here's the, the implications, as I think you're pointing out, which is a Comcast or a Time Warner Cable, instead of being limited to their little their footprint, you yeah. know, where they're serving their little monopoly, they can now sell to almost anyone anywhere as long as you've got an Internet connection. And, right? and I can switch from month to month. I mean, not that I would, but right now I have Time Warner Cable in New York. Wouldn't it be great during the blackout for me to switch to Comcast for a week or two? Now, I know, I know, eventually Comcast deals with CBS are going to come due, and there might be a blackout there, although Comcast tends not to have blackouts. Uh, but if that happens, I can switch to Cox or DirecTV or Intel or, or whatever. Which is and great for consumers because the, the, the promotion oh, right. Finally, start, you have choice. You know? Yeah, true it might choice. might get really of... interesting. Now, I find this a very hard story to explain to readers. I just had to write my whole third paragraph of my story about Sony before we got on the phone here, and I, I tried to do a very basic explainer. Right now, people can get TV this way or this, you know, because it is such a, it's a hard thing to explain. And, and maybe that's going to be one of the challenges for Sony or Intel or Google is the way to market this to people. Um, but if they can do it, it, it potentially really exciting as a story. I mean, I'm just just trying to game plan this thing out. Then you can you can, <laughs> you can see how if they all start competing against each other, then well, it's going to depend on what broadband I have, right? Because if I have Time Warner Cable broadband, then conceivably I'll get Time Warner Cable video for a much cheaper price than I would get Comcast right. video, you know, or whatever it may be. Uh, but then I think what what will what will end up happening is you may see a world where 
the cable companies start to invest in their own exclusive programming, a la DirecTV, right. with uh, right. an audience network and a Sunday ticket. And now all of a sudden, you get mm-hmm. Comcast, you get this, you get and Comcast has that. a huge advantage right there exactly because they already right, own yeah. NBC. Absolutely. So and programming becomes a key to that strategy, as a, not just for marketing, but to hold on to your, your customers. And when they bought it. NBC, there are some limits that come up in 2016 for exclusivity where they can start to do some more theoretically uh, internal exclusive things with some of those NBC properties, um, which they can't do right now because right. they're prohibited based on the language of that deal. And then have sport- you written have you written that story yet? <laughs> I mean, not not in its own because it's so far out. You know, so right, many things have to right. happen yeah. in order for us to get to that point. Yeah. That seven ways down the line. Right, yeah. exactly. It's a, it's a good blog post there to kind of speculate. You know what that might mean. You know, we had Peter Kafka on a few weeks ago, and he talked. To, he's he was talking, and he ended up blogging about this as we were. You know, he t- he blogged about it after we talked about it. But he brought up the fact <laughs> that NFL rights uh, are right. are coming up, and you know what. Can, can you imagine a Google or an Apple with all the cash that they've got ponying up big for, for those rights? Now all of a sudden you're like, oh, I need to pay Google to watch that game. And, and, all, and, and, and to be clear, like in order for this to happen where something like a large station like NBC Properties were taken exclusive, so much would have to change right. in the landscape Absolutely. because otherwise right. Before that, right. jump in. It, it gets a little bit science fiction at that point, but you know but there are increments for sure. But it could happen. That, the yeah. fact that we're on this edge now, I mean, the fact that Viacom may have done a deal – Means that I mean, that's a big breakthrough because maybe someone's actually going to um, uh, launch this this thing online. It's it's a real in- that's why I talk about how it's a great time to be on this beat. I mean, it's such an interesting moment to see all these companies react to each other um, as they evolve. It's interesting that Viacom, you know, was mentioned. You know, it, it's one of those things where whenever I talk to the major programmers, they're all, in principle they're all for something like this, paying for some over the top. As long as they're paying the rate card or you know whatever the bundle rate card ends up being, the one thing that they all tend to say though is that we don't want to be out there alone. You know, Viacom says you know if they're interested, chances are they don't. The contingency around that is well, you have to make sure that Fox is signed up, or you know Time Warner with CNN is signed up as well. We don't want to be the only ones out there, sort of like crossing that Rubicon. So I have to figure that if if Sony and Viacom really did, or or they're close to signing a deal, that there's got to be one or two other major programmers either very close or just about there as well. Yeah. I agree. I mean, it makes sense that Viacom might be the first. They have a contentious history with some of these existing providers. They had a blackout on DirecTV last year, if I'm not mistaken. That's right, yeah. Uh, but they're not the only ones that, that have uh, gotten into scrapes uh, with, with, uh, with, with providers. And I would imagine that uh, this would make it a lot easier to see a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth deal come along. And Intel has said that they're going to come out with something by the end of the year. And when I have spoken with a few people close to the situation there, they remain confident that they'll come up with something uh, and the question will be, and the same with Sony, what is the something? I remember talking to Dish CEO Joe Clayton about a year ago, and he said, look, we could put on a, a live picture of the moon for 24 hours over the top if we wanted, but no one's going to watch it. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, Dish has been working on this for Yeah, uh, they've been working on it over the top, so. yeah. Uh, I actually think I would like to fall asleep to that. <laughs> yeah, I know. It would be somewhat. It would be, that I would, sounds uh, really nice. Joe Clayton narrating the moon, I think, <laughs> uh, would be well, great. Well, that, that and Dog TV, yeah, I'm sure that that'll there's <laughs> right, a market yes. for both. Exactly, yeah. right. Um, but, it, you know, I, the, the point there being just what these things are coming out. If it's Viacom programming, if it's Comedy Central Live, if it's MTV Live, people are going to be interested in that. 
if you can combine that with a little bit more and make it available at an attractive price, obviously the price is such a huge deal here. Yeah, because you got to pay for broadband on top of whatever you're going to end up paying Sony or Intel, any one of these guys. Because they're going to find some sort of – they have to find, I believe, some sort of sweet spot here to make it more compelling than cobbling together Netflix and Hulu, et cetera. And also more compelling than shelling out the eighty to a hundred dollars to buy cable. There's got to be that sweet spot. If they can't hit the sweet spot, I just don't know why people would switch just because it's a sleeker user interface. But I mean, you know, we'll see. Anyways, Brian, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. And thank uh, you. This was uh, fun. Pre- appreciate all the time. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll invite back you back, to please. On our we'll... Sony story. Definitely. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly right. right. That's right. And don't feel too bad when we beat you on future stories, Brian. It's okay. <laughs> you've, you've beaten us plenty of times too. So. Brian Stelter, New York Times reporter. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Inside Scoop, the Bloomberg Media Podcast.